Luke 10, 25 through 37. Uh, that video was published a few days ago, and I, I wept when I, when I first watched it um, because I was encouraged by Twan's story, but I was convicted deeply by what he said. Um, this guy could give a rip what anyone thinks about him. He, he could care less. He cares about making God look great and sharing the gospel, and I, and I thought, man, I, I want to I do that. I want to do that. And, uh, and many times I, I, I think, do we, are, are we willing to say, even if I fail, at least I fail following God? The, the title of my sermon this morning is Foster Care in the Jericho Road, and we're going to be uh, examining a parable that many of us probably are familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I firmly believe that we are on the Jericho Road in our day-to-day lives. We're on that road, and, and many times we don't see it. And so I hope this morning we'll, we'll see it a little more clearly, and we'll see what, what, does, what does Jesus have to say about this journey on the Jericho Road. And more than that, I'm going to be examining what does that mean, even more specifically, for the foster care system, for orphans, for kids who've been displaced, whether for a few weeks or months or years, in Twan's case, because there's 5,000 kids in the foster care system in Alabama, hundreds of them within 60 miles of where we are right now, and they need a good Samaritan, and our ministry seeks to do that, and we, and we love the support and partnership of this church and so many others, and I believe really there's potentially more that, that could happen if we know about it, and if God leads us in that direction, and so I'm, I'm here this morning, first and foremost, not to give a commercial of all that Baptist Children's Homes does. You might leave this morning with questions of what, what do they do exactly? We have children's homes. We have counseling services for families. We have family care ministries for single mothers with children. Uh, we, we train, license, and equip foster families, so we do quite a bit. But more than that this morning, this is about what does the Word of God say, because it's Sunday, and we're going to feast on God's Word. And it's easy, Cody makes my, my job easy, because when I come to a church like this, I can just preach and not have to worry if, if they're expecting a slideshow of, of our ministry, because you're used to getting the word on Sunday mornings. And so that's what we're going to do. It's going to probably potentially feel a little bit like every other Sunday. We're going to read a passage, we're going to uh, try to exegete it best I can under the Lord's will through the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're going to ask questions, what does this mean for us today? Because it's going to look different for each of us. But the question is, what does it mean for, for us? And so let's read in Luke 10, 25, and I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's talking to Jesus here. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and he tells a, a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set on him, set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. After Jesus finished the parable, he asked the law expert, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, for the gospel for the hope and freedom we have in Christ, Lord. We were dead, not half dead on the side of the road, but totally dead in our sins. And you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue us. God, thank you. Lord, help us to understand this passage more clearly this morning. Prepare our hearts, God. Lord, we love you. In your son's name we pray. You know, there's a lot we can take from this parable, and, and it begins, before you even get to the parable, you have this dialogue between the law expert and Jesus, and so we, we, I want to look at that for a second, and so the intro to my sermon, kind of the overarching thing that we have to understand before we go any further is this, in your notes, if you're, if you're taking sermon notes, if you got one when you walked in, if you didn't, there's probably some still in the back there, but, but write this down, this parable is about God's mercy, not moralism. This parable is about God's mercy, not moralism. So look at how this starts, right? This guy, expert in the law, law expert, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know that this guy's not being sincere, okay? This guy isn't sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his every word, saying, what must I do to be saved? This guy's the guy that's sitting in the back with his arms folded, that's trying to back Jesus into a corner. He's there to test Jesus. He wants to try to trick him or expose him because he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe he's the son of God. He's self-righteous, arrogant, thinks he's got his stuff together, knows the Bible, probably in church more than any of us in here. What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Jesus says, well, you're the, you're the law expert. Why don't you tell me? Well, so he quotes scripture, right? Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, he goes along with him. And says, uh, yeah, do, do that and you'll live. Has anybody ever been able to do that? No. No one's ever been able to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, and their neighbors themselves. We've all fallen way, 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 way short of that. But this guy answers as though, yeah, he's, he's got it together. And so Jesus is about to drop a gospel bomb with this parable, and he doesn't know it yet. But he's like, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, do that and you'll live. Because he knows where things are going. Right, and the guy answering and following up, he follows up with the wrong question. He doesn't say, but, but Jesus, I've, I, I've, I've, what if I haven't done all those things all the time? He doesn't say that, does he? He says, and who's my neighbor? And that, my friends, exposes a heart that is not looking to follow Jesus. He says, who's my neighbor? A more appropriate question might be, Lord, what does it look like 
can you teach me how to, how to love my neighbor as myself? What does that look like exactly? See, his question reveals that he's looking for Jesus to provide him a list of rules to follow. He wants some boxes to check off. Yep, got that, done that, go to church, done that, doing this. So far today, I'm doing really well, and now I'll just, after Jesus talks about this, you know, either I'm going to catch him in a lie or I'm going to have some particulars, you know, that I can check off. He wants to hear Jesus say, well, good question, my friend. You know, your, your neighbor is anyone who lives within a one-mile radius of your home, who's uh, a male uh, who follows the law. You know, he wants these, these things that he can do so he can feel like, yeah, I'm doing that. I've got my stuff together. Moralism teaches us that if we're good enough, God will owe us salvation. God will owe us heaven. David Platt has a quote that I think is fitting here. He says, I'm convinced that if there were a thousand ways to earn favor with God, we would want 1,001 ways to earn favor with God. And I don't want anyone here, that's why we've got we've to cover this part, because I don't want anyone here to leave this morning and, and be misled by the lawyer. And if you think following the, a list of rules, coming to church occasionally, tithing a little, not using foul language, you know, being a good family man, staying committed to your spouse, if you think that that gives God no choice but to let you into heaven, then you would be deceived, and that would be tragic. It would be tragic. Because our only hope as sinners is based not on our good merit or our good works, but on the life, death, and resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ. It's on his merit, not ours, that we can be saved. And this parable is about how we are to be rich in showing mercy to others because God, in his loving kindness, has been rich in showing mercy to us as sinners. So loving our neighbor is rooted in our, in our love for Christ. So moralism won't save us, but God's mercy will God's mercy will. So this parable shows us at least three things, right? I'm, I'm, I'm Southern Baptist. Three things. We got three points, right? About what it means to love our neighbor. And first is this. Loving our neighbor does not have boundaries. Loving our neighbor does not have boundaries. So when the law expert says, who's my neighbor? Not only is he trying to check off some boxes and get this criteria of what this could look like. You see, his question also reveals that he's trying to limit compassion to certain types of people. He's trying to limit his compassion to certain types of people. He wants his neighbor to be those that he's most comfortable associating with. And aren't we like this? It's easy. It's easy to get along with those that we like. It's easy to be hospitable to our friends or family, maybe in most cases, right? But in this parable, we see this Samaritan is the one who helps the Jewish man along the road. And that's incredible that Jesus would use the Samaritan to stop and help because Samaritans did not like Jews. They were enemies. It did not make sense for a Samaritan to be the one that stopped. In fact, if anything in this story, you should see the Samaritan walk by and scoff at the guy and kind of make a joke or kick the guy, spit at him perhaps. But if nothing else, just keep walking. And that's not what happens. We notice the Levite and the priest, though, and, and listen here, okay? This is, this, this, I've preached this message a few times, 
now, and, and this uh, gets me every time. The Levite and the priest, okay, you can write this down. Here's what the Levite and the priest had. They had all the biblical knowledge. They knew the Bible. The two that passed by knew the Bible way better than us. They had all the ethical principles. And they had all the racial affinity to the man who was laying on the side of the road. And yet it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And the Samaritan had none of those things. And yet he had compassion. And that was enough. Matthew 5, 46 through 47. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, well, what more are you doing than others? See, it's not enough that we love those who look like us and act like us and think like us and vote like us and operate in the same social networks that we do. This parable reveals that Jesus requires Christians to show love to everyone all the time without exception, period. So this parable teaches us that loving your neighbor does not have boundaries. It doesn't have boundaries. The second thing. Loving our neighbor will demand of us, will demand our time, it will demand our energy, it will demand our resources. It will demand our time and our energy and our resources. See, in this parable, we, we see the Samaritan care for the full range of needs that the victim was facing. Full range of needs. At least seven ways we see this. I'm going to list these out, so if you're, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. First, he risks his own personal safety. Just by stopping, you've got to think in this context. See, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is way above, one's way above elevation and one's below sea level. And so he, this, this journey is actually, the nickname of this is the bloody path or the bloody way. It was not a safe place to travel. I have not been there personally, but as I've read, this was, it was a common thing for robbers it made a perfect escape and getaway to hide along the rocks and crags and crevices on this journey. Lots of switchbacks, right? You, you can think if you've ever left the top of a mountain and gone to the base, it's just back and forth. And there's lots of rocks and crags along this journey there. And so you've got to think at some level, it's kind of like you or I being in the worst part of town, in the worst city at night. And it's dark and you see someone who's in need in the, in the dark alley. Your first thought is maybe not, let me rush over there and help him. It might be, could the robbers still be there, and are they hiding behind that dumpster or something? So, so the fact that this gentleman stops, he's risking his own personal safety. Second, he completely destroys his schedule. Completely destroys his schedule. I, I'm a schedule-oriented person. Um, I like to be early to things. Um, I have my day planned out. And don't mess with that. Don't mess with my schedule. Right? Anybody like that? We got we take lists, have our schedule lined out to the hour, to the minute even. And we get tunnel vision. Jesus says, this parable shows us, you, you've got to hold those plans with an open palm. Because there will be things in your day. Following Jesus means being able to disrupt your schedule. So he destroys his schedule. Third, he becomes dirty and bloody, becomes dirty and bloody through his personal involvement helping the victim. I think most, the average person probably can't fully appreciate this, but 
as you can imagine, a man who's been beaten half dead on the side of the road, emergency medical responders, law enforcement, firemen perhaps, those who've been on the scenes where there's an accident and it's gruesome, somebody's going to be getting bloody and dirty to help that individual. You don't think about that stuff if you're there to help someone. This guy, he doesn't, he's not worried about that in that moment. He's, he's willing to get dirty and bloody. Four, he gives up his oil and wine. Gives up his oil and wine to care for the man's wounds. Now, these were precious commodities, right? At some level, I'm thinking, if, if it's me, I want to think I would do these things, but I'm thinking, man, oil and wine in that time, like, there's only limited quantities of that, and he might think, would, would I be so willing to give up something precious like that? What if, what if he might need it later? He, he gives up his oil and wine. Fifth, he gives up his donkey and chooses to walk the rest of the journey. I mean, the, the journey's bad enough as it is. It's not comfortable. Now he's going to put this gentleman on top of, of his animal and walk the rest of the way. He gives up his finances. Gives up his finances to pay for the hotel. And I think this is amazing too, number seven, and the last one I'll share. He promises a return visit. Promises a return visit. I mean, this guy's a stranger. He's a stranger. And he says he's going to pay any debts that are incurred that are more than what he's already given the innkeeper. And he's going to check on his health to see how he's doing. If we're expecting to love our neighbors as we do ourselves, it's going to take our time. It's going to take our energy. And it's going to take our resources. Third, loving our neighbor is not optional. Loving our neighbor is not an option. There's over 2,000 verses, over 2,000 verses in the Bible that speak of God's love and desire to see justice exercised to the poor and needy and the oppressed. The parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that mercy is a true test of the Christian faith. And this is not an isolated example. This isn't like, like oh yeah, that's that par- parable in Luke where we're told we need to help the people who are in need. I mean, the Bible is full, full of examples of this. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, we see Jesus distinguish between those who have true faith and those who do not by examining their fruit, namely how they treat the poor, how they treat those in need. And when Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, it's as if you did it for me. He's saying that a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable outcome of true Christian faith. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without food or clothing. If one says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing for their needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by works, is dead. The Bible from start to finish teaches us that loving our neighbor is a a litmus test of sorts for true Christian faith. You know, one of the challenges that I face in preaching a message like this is that most everyone in here, including me, is pretty safe. Okay, we, we, tr- 
retreat to safety at night, go home, right? We're pretty wealthy compared to the world. I mean, if you live in this country, you're wealthier than most people. And we're, and we're pretty secure in our lives. Most of us are pretty secure for the most part to have our basic needs met and more than that many times. And the reality is only a small number of people in the history of the church have ever been able to say that. You know, war, injustice, poverty, starvation, famine, natural disaster, diseases, preventable diseases, not having access to clean water are just some of the things. I mean, all these are a result of our separation from God. But the majority of us here today, because of God's kindness, not because of anything we've done or because we're good Americans, right? not because of anything we've done, because of God's kindness to us and mercy on us, will not experience many of those things. And many of us won't even observe those conditions in our day-to-day life because we have infrastructure in our country to where most likely you're not going to drive down the road when you leave today and see kids playing in a trash dump, a trash mountain, just orphan children everywhere trying to find food. You're, not, you're probably not going to see that here. And so it creates this idea that everybody's pretty good. I mean, everybody's, everybody's all right. Except for Jericho Road. That's a thing. That's just this analogy in the Bible. That's not really today. That's not how we live today. And that's not true. That's not true. We go to work. We go to church. We go to school. We go eat at restaurants. Good things. Good things. Right, we go to movies, we go to concerts, sporting events, good things, nothing to be ashamed of. This, isn't, this message isn't about shame or making you feel guilty for these things. But again, we go to these things, we go about our day-to-day life, and it's very possible to live your whole life right here in this context and not think that there's lots of needs even right here where we are in America. Tim Keller says this, he says, The comparative comfort most of us face can isolate us in a fictitious world where suffering is difficult to find. But this isolation is fragile, for suffering surrounds us, even in the suburbs. We need an accurate view of the world in which we live. Perhaps we need to see that instead of living on islands of ease, we're living on the Jericho Road. And here... Here is where I want to pivot and get a little bit more into some application. Okay, so on the back of your notes, we're going we're gonna to dive a little bit more into what does this mean. Again, th- at the end of the day, this text is about be a good neighbor and everyone is your neighbor. Love anyone who's in need. That's what this parable is saying. I want to get really specific here, though, because the Bible gets pretty specific about orphans, widows, and sojourners. There's 5,000 children in the foster care system in Alabama. And I don't believe it's an overstatement to say, excuse me, I missed missed the first point. Foster children are our neighbors. Foster children are our neighbors. So under that umbrella, these children need a good Samaritan. And there's 5,000 of them in our state. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we have a, a somewhat of an orphan crisis. Right here, right here. Not around halfway around the world, certainly that too, but right here. In the counties that make up this area of the Oxford, Anniston, and and that surrounding area, in our state, we have an orphan crisis of sorts. We do. 
We have 5,000 kids who, because of abuse or neglect or abandonment or maltreatment of some sort, need a place to go because they, can't no longer, they can no longer stay where they are. And it's not uncommon for the social worker at DHR who has to go and remove those children or, or child from that situation to have trouble finding a place for them to go because there's way more children and not enough Baptist children's homes and not enough foster families. And most of you probably didn't know that, did you? You probably didn't know that, that the social worker has, these are the kind of things, I'm just going to give you a glimpse into their mind, okay? So they get a call, they've been out there before, they know of these siblings. It's, it, there, here it is again. Another, a teacher's called in once again to report something that's not right. A neighbor sees something happening, and now they've got to act. They cannot let these kids stay there any longer. It's not safe. They're not getting fed. It's disgusting. They're being neglected, whatever it might be, right? Or maybe there's mental illness involved. As in Twan's case, it was a combination of things, and usually it is. None of these cases are all the same, right? But so she goes, perhaps, to check on that child, and here's what she sees. What she sees is concerning. She's got to take them. She's got to put them somewhere else. But you know what her problem is? Her rationale might be this, unfortunately. Where I don't have anywhere for them to go. I know our county doesn't have any more foster families. They're all full with kids. The Baptist Children's Homes is full. The counties that I know of are full. I'm going to have to start, I mean, how am I going to find a home for three kids, especially when there's siblings involved? Now I'm going to have to split them up. Maybe one can go here, one can go over there. And there's, I, I know there's a county like four hours from here that has an available home. So kids get sent to other places at times because there's not a place right near in their context. Or... Or it's four in the afternoon, and that social worker is thinking, I don't want to, man, I'm ready to get home to my family. My son's got a baseball game today. They've got lives too. And they don't have families to go to, so now she's got to think, I've got to go research and find out where these kids are going to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's mentally draining, emotionally draining. And it all has to do with, we just don't have enough foster families. The sin in the world has created this dichotomy of where there's kids who need help and we don't have the help to give them. And it's not the state's problem, really. Who's, whose responsibility is it first and foremost? It's the church. It's the church. It's so clear. It's the church. These kids come from our neighborhoods, apartment complexes, trailer parks, right around here, right around here. And again, you're not going to see them when you walk home today holding a sign that says, I need a place to go, I'm an orphan, I haven't eaten in three days. You're not, you're not going to see that. It's shielded. We're shielded from it. So we think that everything's good, everything's fine. Never heard this stuff. We've got 3,200 Southern Baptist churches in our state. 3,200 that identify as Southern Baptist. 10,000 evangelical churches. Over 10,000 of them. The math is pretty simple. I mean, really, it, it's, it's quite simple when you do the math. If God's people respond to God's word and recognize that we're living on the Jericho Road, then, then we could radically transform the foster care system and the whole landscape of this stuff. Second thing, God has a special concern for the orphan. God has a special concern for the orphan. So there's three groups of people in the Bible, as I mentioned earlier, that get special attention. They get special attention. Orphans, widows, and sojourners. What's a sojourner? Well, in some cases, sojourners are refugees. Not 
all the time, but in some cases. People who don't have a place to go. They're wondering of sorts. They need someone to be hospitable to them. But orphan, we're talking about orphans here. So throughout the Old and New Testament, we see at least 40 specific references of God's love for the orphan. Why orphans? Why does God get specific in this issue? Why is it not just enough for him to say, help people who need help? I believe there's two reasons that we see God specifically call our attention to fatherless children, orphan children, orphans, widows, sojourners, over and over. It's because I think orphans are particularly helpless. One of the reasons is orphans are particularly helpless. Children are most vulnerable when there's abuse, manipulation, starvation. Uh, They depend, absolutely depend on someone else to care for those needs, don't they? I mean, if you've had children, I've got two young children, they depend on mom and dad for everything, literally. Second reason I think that we see orphans get special attention, or children in many cases, uh, get special attention from Jesus on a couple of examples, is children can't vote. In this context, children are second-class citizens, children and women, really. They have no voting power. They're not going to stand up and give a speech about how great your care was to them and about how you deserve something because of what you've done. In fact, in many cases, children take us for granted, don't they? They're, they're not like coming to mom after every meal and saying, Mom, that was such a great meal. Thank you so much. That was the best meal I've had all day. Many times, they f- take for granted of the Christmas gifts. They've just gotten tons of Christmas gifts, and, and their they're the first thought may not be to say, Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you. And we do this. We're like this, too. It's not our kids only. It's the sinful nature in us. We take for granted what we have. And kids kids do this. They expose our hearts and reveal whether or not we truly desire to serve or whether we desire to get praise through our service. Many of the children who come to Baptist Children's Homes or live in foster homes are not exuding attitudes of gratefulness. Some do. Some do. As Ted Embry says, he's the director, he says, when children come to us, they're either sad because they've left mom and dad and they're scared, they don't know what's going on, they're mad, they're angry, what is this? I hate these people, what is this? Why are they taking me from my dad? He's not bad, they don't know that dad's on drugs, they don't know that dad was pulled over at 3 a.m. for a DUI and he's got no other family, he doesn't know dad's passed out, he just thinks dad's taking a nap. So he's mad, or they're they're glad, they're glad that they've been removed from that abuse, They're, they're thankful for it. Those are less common, though. So children expose our hearts because they're not going to stand up and make a social media post about how great their care was, right? They're not going to tell their teacher and their whole class about how awesome their foster dad or the Baptist Children's Home is. Usually that stuff happens way later when they can look back on their life and say, wow, I'm like Twan can because of God's intervention in his life. They expose our hearts. One of the most famous and often quoted verses Surrounding orphan care is James one twenty seven. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. That word visit there, if, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. That word visit does not just mean like we're going to visit over lunch or coffee. It means to care for, to look after. In fact, it comes from the Greek word episkopos. That, that word is used in a number of places. It means shepherd, overseer. So we're told to be a shepherd 
be a shepherd. That's personal involvement. A shepherd to these children. So here's a question. If the Bible says we're to show mercy to our neighbor, and our neighbors include foster children, and we see overwhelming support, very specific examples throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, of God saying care for the fatherless, care for the orphan, then why are there still so many children in our state who need a safe place to go, who need a Christian family? I think there's six reasons that I'm going to provide of why why this is the case. And uh, I think these are six things that sometimes prevent us from perhaps fostering children or getting more involved in this system. First, I think in some cases, we're just simply unaware of the need. We're unaware of the need. It's, it's many of you here this morning are saying, I did not know this was, a, I didn't know the, the kids sleep on the floor at DHR sometimes because there wasn't a family for them to go to. I didn't know that kids were leaving Alabama and having to go to Georgia and Tennessee and Florida they're having to make these laws that allow that to happen because there's not enough people sometimes in the context of where they are. So it's just, I, I didn't know. I was ignorant of that need, but thank you for telling me. We'll, we'll talk about it. That's maybe one. Second, there's a biblical disconnect, I think, from orphan care. When those of us who've been in the church know our Bibles, know that God has a special concern for orphans, and our mind doesn't go to foster care. It goes to the child living in an orphanage in Uganda or Guatemala, and certainly there, there are children in needs there, certainly. I'm not trying to make this nationalistic campaign, but we need to care, we need to have a global perspective of our concern. The Bible is not pro-America, right? We need to have a concern for all people all over. But, but certainly there are kids here who need help, and I don't know that our mind thinks of foster children sometimes when we read the Bible. Third, I think season of life. Season of life is an answer. Well, it's just the wrong season. And this is a legitimate thing. I, I don't want to say that that's an excuse that's not valid. I think it's, it may be that the season of life you're in does not allow you to, to be a foster family or a respite care family. But I think the, the point here is we need to wrestle with that. We need to grapple with it. We need to have our heart open to what God might call us into. Let God make that decision. Don't make that decision just pragmatically. And men... We make pragmatic choices a lot of times, don't we? We think first and foremost, what makes sense? So I want to I challenge the men here too. Think, think biblically about this. Grapple with this stuff. Four, fear of being alone in the process. There's a fear of if I foster children, man, I, I don't know, would, would we have church support? Would we be all alone? Is anybody going to understand this? I know that other family did it, and it seemed like they had a lot of needs, but no one was really helping them, or, or I don't really understand that stuff, so I don't know what I can do to help. This is not a church where I believe that would happen. I just don't buy it. I, I just don't buy it. I think this is the kind of church that wraps around families that might enter into foster care or adopt or, or respite care, which is like part-time foster care. I'll mention more of that in a second. Five, I think there's a fear of getting too attached. This is a big one perhaps the most, or at least the most often used as an excuse, too. I think it's legitimate at times. There's a fear of getting too attached to a child that might leave, and then there's, well, well, we, we just can't, we can't handle that. That's too emotionally, and, and that's fair, okay? That's fair. It's gonna, you're going to get attached, but let me tell you something. 
we are looking for families that are willing to get too attached. We don't want families that are going to treat a foster child like a second-rate citizen in their home. That's not, uh, no, those aren't for us. That's not how a Christian family treats a child or a neighbor. That's not, that's not how it works. So if you think, man, that would be hard. I just, loving a child, I would love them so much. Good, we need you. You're exactly who we're looking for. Jason Johnson is a pastor. He, he writes a blog. He's a foster dad. Lives in Wyoming, I believe. He says, we can't let the fear of loving a child who might leave deter us from fostering. Instead, we must let the fear of a child never knowing love drive us. He says, the call in foster care is not to get a child for your family, but to give your family for a child. It's not about us. And sixth, I think there's, at the end of the day, guys, it takes time. Man, raising children takes time. It's not easy. Sometimes it's hard. It's joyful. It's amazing. I love it, but it, it can be hard. There's seasons of good and, and challenge. And, and to become a foster parent, it takes time just to become a foster parent. So not just once you have the child, but just getting to that point where you will have a child in your home potentially. You've got to go through 10 weeks of GPS training. So the Baptist Children's Homes, we offer those twice a year typically. So we've just started one, and we're finishing one up at First Baptist Church, Sachs, Alabama. I'm not quite familiar where that is. I think it's north of Anniston, Oxford a little bit, but it's not that far from here. We had eight families or couples going through that training, and they're, they're like in week nine or ten. There's ten weeks. I mean, on Monday nights, it's three hours each Monday night for ten weeks. Uh, so it's about 30 hours that you have to go through. We'll probably start one up in this area within a 50-mile radius in the, the fall, probably in September, sometime in there. And so it's ten weeks. And then there's home studies. So from the first time you go to that first class to get trained, to be licensed, then after you're done with that class, you've got to fill out some paperwork, and it's going to get a little invasive. One of our caseworkers will come out and probably do an interview with you and your spouse to make sure you're safe. But think about it. Why would we want it to be that easy? You're getting a child. The government is entrusting a child to Baptist Children's Homes who's entrusting a child to your family. I mean, we need it to be, we need to make sure families are, are qualified. But that shouldn't drive us away. It may mean that we alter our, you know, what we do on Monday nights, one night a week for 10 weeks. I think the third, third thing there under application, five ways. So how can we be a good Samaritan to foster children? I'm going to give you five ways we can be a good Samaritan to foster children. There's a lot of other ways. I'm not going to, there's countless ways. I'm just going to give you five. One, you can become a foster parent. It's not easy. It's very fulfilling, very fulfilling. I can tell you story after story of how God has used a family, just like Quan's story. Quan lived in one of our children's homes, but there's other kids, babies. Many times the youngest ones are the ones who end up with foster families. Usually it's the sibling groups or the older children that end up with our, in our group homes for a time. But becoming a foster parent. If you have questions about any of this, by the way, I'll be out afterwards. We can talk more about what that could look like or what the next step would be if you're interested at all in knowing more about it. Second, become a respite care provider. So respite care, when a foster family has had a child for maybe several weeks or, or months, 
they need they need a break at some point, right? They need date nights, just like we all need from 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 my children. My wife and I need to get away. A few weeks ago, we had, in four years, we got a four year old. We had not been away together away for several days in four years. So I called my mom and dad, who don't live anywhere near here, and I said, "Can y'all please come up in a couple months? Lauren and I just need to get away." So we went to Chattanooga for three days. It was an amazing three days. Foster parents need that, though, don't they? We all need that, but foster parents really need that at times. So a respite care family, if there was a foster family or several foster families in every church and several respite families in every church, then that family doesn't have to worry about, well, where are we going to go? I mean, our child can't stay overnight with just anybody. Now, he can have stay at a babysitter for several hours. That, that foster child can stay with a family who's had a background check done and is you know, okay, but overnight stay requires you to be a respite care family. And so that's how respite care families, for every foster family, we need a respite family. And I asked our social worker at Oxford just this week, I said, do we need respite families right now? Is there a need for that? She said, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We've got 17 foster families in this area. We've got eight who are going through training. We've got four more who are finishing up home studies. So this is growing. By God's grace, families are, are doing this more and more throughout our state. Uh, we're just trying to keep up with the demand. So I'm on the financial side of this. How do we afford social workers? How do we pay for these things? But God is providing, right? And so we need respite care families because God's growing our base of foster families, but we don't have many respite care families, so we need both. Uh, third, conduct a work project on our Oxford campus. So our, we've got a children's home. Some of you are familiar with it. Maybe you've been there. I know this church has, has done things that I'm not even aware of to serve our ministry, so thank you. We're very grateful very grateful for our church support. I would say keep that up. Continue that. Um, we've got needs at that campus, work projects, all kinds of stuff that, that men's groups, women's groups, youth groups can do. It's very helpful. Uh, collect and donate items on our needs list. We keep our needs list updated. You can find it on our website. When a child gets, uh, when a child comes into our care or when a child is placed with one of our foster families, guess what they have automatic needs for immediately? Well, if it's a two-year-old, diapers, wipes, clothes, maybe a suitcase. Many times these kids literally come with like a, a Walmart bag or a trash bag with a few things in it. And sometimes those things need to be burned in a fire pit because they're disgusting. Sometimes, not all the time. But there's needs that come along with caring for children. There's needs at our children's homes. We've got eight kids at a time that can live in, in that home and, and the house parents cook for them. And so think about your family just much bigger. Those, those are needs that we experience. Uh, Christmas gifts. Household items, school supplies, when school starts back, all kinds of opportunities. Uh, and fifth, financial gifts. Um, we're so thankful that this church uh, supports us. So some of your tithe, and I don't know all the specifics, but some of what you give as you tithe, and I hope you tithe. As a church member, I hope you tithe. Um, some of that comes to us, and we're very grateful for that. In fact, about a quarter of our budget, we have a $12 million budget, about a quarter of it comes from churches, most of which are Southern Baptist churches. So thank you for that. For those who might be interested in going above and beyond their tithe to the church but would want to do more, I've got ways you can do that, some specific areas that, that, are, uh, that we can use help with there. We don't receive federal or government funding. So here's my conclusion. I'm going to wrap it up. And I'll, I know this was a lot. This is a lot of information. It's a lot, of, a lot to take in. Um, if any of this speaks to you at all, if you just have questions about anything, I'll be out there afterwards. Uh, but I want to conclude with a quote from a missionary named William Carey. William Carey lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. 
when he was a young man, maybe 20 or so, he decided he he felt called to be a missionary. And he was going to leave Britain and get on a ship and travel to India. Think about that this time. This was a treacherous thing. They didn't have an airplane. He's going to go give his life on the mission field to the people of India and tell people about Jesus and serve there. And as he's going to get on the boat, his friends, his friends come to see him off, and they say, they basically are saying something to the effect of, man, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to go, you want to leave all this here, and you want to go give your life to people that you don't even know in India? Now, they might not have said it quite like that, but basically it's like, are you sure, are you, sure you want to do this? And I love Kerry's response. He says, I will go into the pit itself if you will hold the rope. There is, there's a messy pit involved with serving, involved with foster care. And some of us are called to go into that pit. And we cannot do it. We cannot do it alone. The Holy Spirit is holding that rope, and he calls us to join in on that rope. And at times, we're going to need you to pull, pull that thing up for a little while. We need some air. And then let it back down. Are you called to go into the pit of foster care, respite care, serving in this capacity? Or are you called to be a rope holder? I've given you several ways to, to put legs to this analogy. I would just ask you to pray about it, think about it, talk about it. Talk about it over lunch. I know when we leave here, we're hungry, ready to go. we got the next, the day is planned. Talk about it. Tonight, or when you lay down with your spouse, or, or you know, just talk about it. Bring it up. I'm praying, I'm praying that God will prompt someone in your family to, to talk about this. Let's pray. God, maybe it's the youth in here. Lord, who would love to be a, a, an older sibling to a foster child. And I pray, God, if, if, if you will use youth or children to talk to mom and dad and say, where, where do we fit into this? What, what does it mean for our family? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a wife. And this has come up before, but here it is again. And the husband is saying, oh, no, I know what's coming. God, I pray for that spouse. I pray for that husband. God, soften his heart. Lord, I can't, there's nothing I have. I'm not persuasive enough. There's nothing I can do. It will fail. But Lord, your word can do plenty. And the Holy Spirit can penetrate any heart that's cold or shut off to any concept of service. Lord, I pray you would do that right now. Right now, God. Maybe it's your grandparents. Kids are out of the house. Finally arrived. Time to set sail. Take it easy. Watch the grandchildren that are coming. Lord, if maybe some, God, as you know, some of our best respite families are grandparents. God, I pray whatever capacity it might be, whether it's foster care, respite care, serving, starting an orphan care ministry, Lord, what, whatever it might be, God, I pray for those conversations as we leave here. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. In your son's name we pray, amen.